You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. A misunderstanding may have been a blessing in disguise for Ronald Reagan, just as a lost political contest was a blessing in disguise for John F. Kennedy. After Republican conservatives became disenchanted with President Gerald Ford in 1975 and 1976, his pardon of Nixon was unpopular at the time with the left wing, but also with Republican conservatives. His performance on the economy, his failure to shepherd conservative programs, and his choice of a moderate Republican, Nelson Rockefeller, for his vice president, all added up to disenchantment among conservatives. Ronald Reagan, former actor, former labor union head, GE spokesman, former Democrat, now a Republican and a two-term governor of California, mounted a primary challenge against Gerald Ford. Challenges against incumbent presidents had gone nowhere in the past. A 1972 challenge to Nixon by a conservative Ohio congressman was laughed off. Ford didn't take Reagan seriously. He thought he was all talk and glossed over details of governing. A few primary losses convinced Ford that he had to change his tune. He had a fight on his hand. Although he had earned great praise for choosing Nelson Rockefeller as his vice president, he agreed that he would dump Rockefeller in 1976 and pick someone else more pleasing to conservatives. The gambit didn't work, and Ford picked up few conservatives in the primaries from this move. If anything, he appeared weak for being so quick to dump his veep. Reagan told the press, I am not appeased. The Reagan primary challenge was the most intense since Taft and Roosevelt duked it out in 1912. Yet the power of an incumbent president, even an appointed one, was strong in 1976 just as it had been in 1912. And Ford benefited from having two skillful deputies, Dick Cheney, and Donald Rumsfeld. Reagan was beat at the convention in Kansas City. Both campaigns wanted to show unity at that event. It was disappointing to many in the party that the contest had reached the convention. And so both campaigns agreed that whoever won, the other candidate would appear at the Victor's Hotel Suite for the press to see. Ford got the required number of delegates, and so Dick Cheney, then Ford's chief of staff, called Reagan's campaign manager, John Sears, and told him that Ford was ready for the governor to come up. Okay, Sears said. And Sears was a very aggressive and maybe a little bit rambunctious campaign manager. Okay, but he's not going to discuss the vice presidency because he's not interested in that. Sears was a bit trigger-happy on this point. He had done well for Reagan and would be brought back in 1980. But here he made a mistake. He had not checked with his candidate, Reagan, before he made that statement to Cheney. He might have only meant to say that he didn't want to discuss the vice presidency at the meeting, that he wasn't interested in discussing 
but not necessarily that he wasn't interested in the office. After the election, Reagan had indicated that if Ford had asked him, he would have certainly said yes and signed on as the vice presidential candidate. Would Ford have picked him? Tensions were high in 1976, and Reagan had attacked Ford pretty badly, so it's possible that Ford might have said, no way. But Reagan also had assets. Could he have won the election for Ford? It's hard to say. The person that Ford would choose, Bob Dole, didn't help him very much in that election. But assuming the outcome in 1976 was the same, and Jimmy Carter would combine urban bosses in his northern states and down-home south votes to win a narrow election against Ford, Reagan might have never been president. It reminds us of another time when Democrats met in 1956. They knew their nominee would be Adelaide Stevenson. There's no surprise there. They knew their opponent would be the president, Dwight David Eisenhower. No surprise there. The only surprise was who the vice presidential choice of the Democrats would be. And Stevenson decided to ramp up the suspense at the convention by letting the choice of vice president go to the convention to a majority vote. A battle ensued between the coonskin cap-wearing senator, Estes Kefauver of Tennessee, and the Irish Bostonian, John F. Kennedy of Massachusetts. Joe Kennedy Sr. warned his son not to do it. He reasoned, if Kennedy got the VP nomination, and then Stevenson Kennedy lost in 56, Kennedy would be finished, especially because he was a Catholic. He would be blamed for the loss. It wouldn't be fair. Stevenson had already lost one election against Eisenhower, and in all likelihood he was going to lose another one, but Kennedy yet would be blamed. As it turned out, delegates chose the Protestant Kefauver, and Democrats lost the election. Religion was not the issue. So Kefauver won that little battle in 1956 in the convention, but Kennedy became president in the next election, as Reagan would 20 years later. Joe Kennedy's words perhaps could be a warning to vice presidential candidates on losing tickets, running for the presidency. It might be a waste of time. This topic has always been of interest. We've talked about it uh, before in podcasts, but it has particular relevance as the losing vice presidential candidate of 2008, Alaska Governor Sarah Palin, looks very likely to make a play, the moral leadership of the party at least, to be the media spokesperson for the party at least, which could only be an attempt at 2012 or 2016. In his concession speech, John McCain indicated that the party had a new shining star. With McCain's banned political maneuvers and poor performance at the debates, Palin has cause to make the case to the GOP that she was the better element of the two in the campaign. She can at least make that case. A high-profile appearance at the Republican Governors Association recently and appearances in the runoff Senate race in Georgia have sealed the deal. She is in GOP circles, a crowd drawer. If she seeks such a road, she can look to this parallel. Richard Nixon in 1968. He lost a presidential election, lost a gubernatorial election, and absolutely embarrassed himself with a poor debate performance in 1960, and then a ridiculous press conference in 1962 in which he told reporters it would be his last press conference and that, quote, you don't have Dick Nixon to push around anymore. 
looked like a man who was finished, who would never be seen on the television screen again. In 1968, he parlayed those low expectations and by comparison to his former self, seemed to many reporters to be warm and human. He even made jokes about uh, the, the, the press conference where it acted like a fool. In that vein, Palin should have no trouble beating the image of 2008. It was obvious in 2008 that she was not ready for the national stage. She was not prepared on national issues. She cannot talk fluently about national and foreign affairs. The expectation game should have helped her, but there was not prep time to do anything more than evade questions, make generalisms, and meet expectations rather than beat them. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance Podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. Given more time... She has an even chance of beating the expectations, the very low expectations she set with her performance on camera so far, long term. Uh, one could envision a couple of big policy speeches uh, in the future. Now, beating those expectations doesn't mean that she would be the nominee, and there certainly will be other contenders. Governor Palin has a strong challenge. The curse of losing vice presidential candidates running for president in the next election. In the limelight, a foremost name, the would-be number two. But yet, it still seems that the people who are in this spot become associated with the lost election of the past. The recent election demonstrated that for John Edwards, vice presidential pick under Kerry in 2004, and arguably an exciting part of the ticket in that year, someone who orchestrated a campaign for the VP slot, most likely in the hopes of running for the top job himself, he gained very little out of being the number two Democrat for four months in 2004. It didn't place him in any higher sphere, it seemed, as he mounted his own run. While he was sure to face front-runner Hillary Clinton, which would have made 2008 a challenge for anyone, the primary would reveal, obviously, that there was room for an anti-Hillary candidate. But Edwards, despite a big effort in Iowa and spending a lot of time there, came in second there to Barack Obama. 
Edwards made a few debate appearances and dropped out. This echoed the campaign in 04 of Joe Lieberman, the nominee from 2000, whose laughable Joe-mentum never appeared on the national stage. Of note is that neither former VP candidate in the past two elections got the endorsement of the person that picked them as a running mate four years earlier. Kind of an interesting thing. Gore, in 2004, endorsed Dean, not Lieberman, who he had chosen to be his running mate in 2000. And Kerry, fairly early on, backed Barack Obama, not John Edwards, who had chosen to be his running mate four years earlier. Evidence of the standing of a losing vice presidential candidate is seen in that even the people who thought that they would be the second best for the presidency didn't choose them. But Edwards joins Henry Cabot Lodge, Bob Dole, Ed Muskie, Kefauver as losing vice presidential candidates who were considered for president but didn't make it, with only Bob Dole reaching even a nomination. And this, 20 years after his appearance on the ticket as a vice presidential candidate, not in the next election, and after a stint as Senate Majority Leader and being a well-known Republican politician. Why is it that the bottom position of a losing ticket is just not a great place to launch a presidential campaign? Well, maybe the first thing to look at is that the losing position on the top of the ticket is not good. Uh, Parties don't often run those who lose presidential elections. While Nixon came back from his 1960 loss, most have not. Secondly, the vice presidency itself is not, it appears, a great place to run from. George Bush Sr. and Martin Van Buren remain the only two people in American history to win the office while being the sitting vice president. Those are lousy odds, considering the attention that is focused on this office continuously. Yet, there seems to be no lack of attempts of people to run from the vice presidency for president. Former Veeps, Al Gore, Dan Quayle, Walter Mondale, Hubert Humphrey. Nixon attempted to uh, win the office the first time with no avail. Joining uh, Henry Wallace and Alvin Barkley, vice presidents who attempted to get the presidency. One wonders if it's a good idea at all, despite all the focus and the name recognition of the vice president, for them to run for the presidency. Perhaps the office... Uh, with seen as sort of an assistant for the president, just makes the person look less presidential. If the actual vice presidents, men who lived at the Naval Observatory, couldn't get a few neighborhoods down to the White House, perhaps that's a bad omen for those who merely attempted but failed to get the number two job. Is this all the Founding Fathers' fault? We know that they didn't think very much of the vice presidency. That they knew they needed something, some kind of office where they could not justify what they wanted, which is a single human being as executive. A single human being in such a powerful office versus a troika. And they couldn't justify that unless they compensated for the one failing of a single human being in an office, the possibility of death of the individual holding such an office. So they created a vice presidency, 
And then, as George Clinton, likely writing as Cato, a critic of the Constitution, said, for want of employment, they made him president of the Senate. Clinton, or whoever Cato was, was not far off. The vice president is not a number two, even though he's often called that. In many cases, most White Houses, in fact, except for the most recent one, a chief of staff is much closer to a number two than the vice president. In the 19th century, the secretary of state filled that role as the most prestigious individual in the federal government next to the president himself. Veeps have no power unless given power by the president, unless given assignments. Presidents have been doing that more often recently, and of course Cheney is the most powerful Veep ever. But it is still, even in Cheney's case, the result of presidential delegation of power. American voters sense this and know that the Veep has little independent power. They don't seem to value the occupants immediately as presidential material. So again, the role of the person who wanted to be the bottom of the ticket is not surprisingly not valued highly. Yet there still is that curse and the call of fame that comes from being on a national ticket. After running on a ticket with Richard Nixon in 1960, Henry Cabot Lodge, former Massachusetts senator and one of a long line of Massachusetts politicians, was appointed by John F. Kennedy to be ambassador to Vietnam. Kennedy appointed several Republicans, McNamara, Dillon, but something happened in 1964 in New Hampshire, which I'm certain would not happen now. Without Henry Cabot Lodge's knowledge, without any kind of campaign, Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. became the winner of the 64 New Hampshire primary. His fame from his previous run had made him the logical choice of so many Republicans. However, when he left his appointment in Vietnam to actually run a campaign, he was defeated in most of the subsequent primaries, and Barry Goldwater, the conservative leader, took over. After the disastrous convention of 1968 in Chicago, which police and protesters clashed, many remember one bright moment. Humphrey's nominee for vice president, his fellow senator, Ed Muskie of Maine. Muskie made a great speech and calmed convention delegates down, calling for unity. He was a force in Washington and a moderate on the Vietnam War. And after Humphrey's loss, Muskie became the front-runner for 1972. Ted Kennedy was another possibility, but after the Chappaquiddick incident, it looked like Kennedy was going to bide his time. Muskie rose to the top. But a story most likely planted by the Nixon White House was placed in the Manchester Union, a prominent New Hampshire newspaper attacking Muskie's wife. Muskie held an angry press conference in which it was said that he was crying. Muskie claimed it was a snowflake. The newspaper said he was crying. It was a clear sign that politics is not only ridiculous now, but has been ridiculous for some time. But the image, whether it was snowflake or not, undid Muskie. If Governor Palin seeks a nomination to the White House, 
There is a positive example, but only one in American history, of a losing vice presidential candidate who went on to become president, and that is Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Having lost in 1920, running under James M. Cox, the Democratic ticket for vice president, Franklin Roosevelt came back in 1932 and won. This was after being crippled by polio, running for governor of New York, 1928, then for re-election and being extremely popular and re-elected with a sizable margin, with margin in 1930. It was 12 years after his vice presidential run, and it's very likely that when he ran in 1932 for president, uh, voters thought of him as the governor of New York and not so much as the vice presidential candidate in 1920. He likely would not have had a chance in 1924 if Franklin Roosevelt would have come about. Democrats were killed that year, not only because they were split between South and New York and the McAdoo and Al Smith campaigns, but also because Coolidge was popular. Franklin Roosevelt is indicative that one loss in a VP ticket doesn't cast you out. But still, The ballyhoo about Sarah Palin and the media obsession with the politician-slash-celebrity should be tempered with the history of it. There's always buzz and talk about the former VP candidates, or there often is. They created a lot of excitement. Campaigns raise a lot of money and get a lot of media attention. That's the type of publicity that would be hard for any candidate to buy. But while there's always a lot of buzz and talk about former VP candidates, nominations are rare, And wins, obviously, rarer still, just the one. At the very least, we can see that there will be significant challengers to Palin's attempt, if she does attempt, to be the new party spokesperson and the likely 2012 or 2016 candidate. And these opponents will focus their campaign on the fact that she was part of a losing effort, her fault or not. With history beating up politics, I'm Bruce Carlson. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.